Welcome to the CareCast. Well, welcome everybody to another CareCast. We are live again and it's great to be with you. We are in a new series at the moment. We are asking the big questions that some of you will be thinking about. Will life ever be the same again? And in this CareCast, we're focusing in on the issue of technology and how the coronavirus pandemic has changed the way that we relate to the technology around about us. And I am delighted to be joined on this podcast by some eminent guests who will be able to guide our discussions and take us through some of the intricacies of technology and our relationship to it. So I'm going to introduce them to you, starting off with Mr. Matt James. Matt, welcome to the CareCast. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're currently doing? Thanks, uh, James. Thanks for the welcome. Uh, yeah, my name is Matt James. Uh, I've really been engaged in the whole field of the ethics and social implications of new technologies now for the last 10 years. Uh, I've worked previously as a parliamentary researcher in Westminster, moved on to do some consulting with various think tanks in this area. And now, uh, alongside that work now, I'm also Associate Professor in Bioethics at St Mary's University. And am I right in thinking, Matt, that your brother is the producer of this podcast? Is that right? It, indeed he is. So I'm kind of putting my life in, in his hands to know how, he, how well he edits me. But there we go. We will, we'll put that to one side or erase it from my memory, at least for the next hour. <laughs> I also understand that you recommended that he apply for the care job, and um, for which I am very, very grateful to you. Well, well there we go. That, that's great that my advice has been heeded by at least someone in my life. <laughs> Brilliant. Matt, great to have you with us on the CareCast. Thank you. Um, our second guest on our panel is Professor John Wyatt. Uh, John, great to have you with us. Can you share a little bit about yourself, your backgrounds and what you're currently doing? Yeah, thanks. It's good to be here. My background is as a medic uh, working in the NHS and as an academic researcher into brain injury. But um, out of my clinical experience, I became more and more interested in medical ethics and in particular how as technology advances it raises age-old questions about what it means to be human. So at the moment I'm, I'm really focusing on issues raised by uh, AI and robotics and information technology and trying to work out how on earth to relate this sort of explosive growth in these kind of areas to age-old uh, important theological, philosophical and social questions. Brilliant. John, thank you very much. And I'm right in thinking that you are the author of Matters of Life and Death. Is, is that right? Yes, I, I wrote a book called Matters of Life and Death, particularly dealing with um, issues at the beginning of life and the end of life. Um, and that a lot of that came out of my own clinical experience. Fantastic. Fantastic. John, thank you so much for being with us. Great to have you on the podcast. Last but by no means least is uh, Mr. Richard Sargent. Richard, great to have you on the podcast. Can you just introduce yourself and, and let us know what you're currently doing? Thank you, James. Well, currently I'm in lockdown like everybody else, but uh, working in an AI technology company called Faculty. I'm also on the board of the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation, which is a uh, an independent uh, body advising government on uh, ethics and the best way of handling some of these new technologies. Uh, and then uh, I also run a podcast called Faith in Action uh, in my spare time as a side project. Faith in Action, by the way, is a fantastic podcast and very well worth a listen as well. And Richard, you didn't pay me anything for that extra plug, did you? <laughs> 
Um, Richard, thank you so much. Great to great to have you on the podcast. Gentlemen, what we want to do is talk about our relationship with technology and the coronavirus pandemic. And the first area I'd, I'd like us to look at is, we're calling it the great revealing. Um, and uh, just looking at my notes here, many, many words have been used to describe the coronavirus uh, pandemic. Extraordinary, perplexing, unsettling, era-defining. That one really struck me. Do, is that is that your general perception? Do you think that we have entered a new era in, in world history because of the coronavirus pandemic? Well, I, for one, do think that. I, I think that as historians look back on the 21st century, they're going to divide it into pre-corona and post-corona. And um, I think, as so often, when you're in the midst of one of these great cataclysms of um, world events, it's often quite difficult to get a grip on it. And, and, and maybe, you know, it's pretty hopeless, that task. But at least I think we have to start the task of trying to get our heads around what's happening and what the long-term implications are going to be. I think Corona is going to be enormously significant, but I, I see it more as a catalyst than as a, a disjunction between uh, before and after. I, I don't know, there are a few things that have struck me about it, but one is how it's uh, tended to reveal the, the latent potential of, of technology uh, to support new ways of working. For example, you know, 10 years ago, it'd be impossible to imagine uh, such a quick adoption of us all working from home or, or schools teaching remotely. Um, but all this technology has been around for a couple of years. Uh, it's, it's taken Corona as a, as a set of circumstances, as an event to catalyze uh, the adoption of it. Yeah, I think a really good example of that actually is the NHS and in particular primary care with GPs. Um, the, uh, as you say, all the technology has been available to do what's called telemedicine and, and so on. And yet there's been, uh, there was a huge reluctance amongst doctors and managers to take this on. And then within days, the entire NHS has pivoted. And now this is, seems to be a completely normal way. I've, uh, I had a a phone call with my own GP just a couple of days ago, and this just seemed completely uh, appropriate. Whereas thinking how hard it was to get an appointment even to, to talk to a GP in the previous era. Absolutely, I, 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 I echo those thoughts. I've worked with various think tanks looking at health technology over the, over the last couple of years and, and trying to get the traction for widespread and, and, and uh, adoption of these technologies has been rather difficult. But I think I've heard the analogy described as this as being a, a burning platform moment. You know, we're all on the platform and trying to get people to jump off into the new has been difficult. But if you set fire to the platform, it kind of changes the situation a little bit more. and We're a bit more inclined to want to do some of these things. And, and I think that's very much the case in, in health and social care particularly. And it is astonishing how well the technology has worked, isn't it? I mean, um, I'm just blown away by how well the internet, Zoom and Teams and these other technologies are, have actually been working. Um, you know, I was, I was just reflecting, what would it be like if the pandemic had happened, say, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, and all we had was long-distance telephone calls and, and maybe the occasional fax and... Uh, um, it would have been a very different experience, but um, because uh, IT had has advanced to such a state of sophistication, it has been possible to um, to pivot to to home working and to um, to various other kinds of internet connection remarkably rapidly. Yes, absolutely right, and I I wonder whether 
with technology in general, we tend to focus on on what we don't have. We don't have the flying cars. We don't have the the jetpacks. Uh, although I'm sure we're looking forward to both. But uh, we uh, we have got a whole bunch of technology that it's taken circumstances like Corona to get us to make use of and change our practice. I I wonder, you know, what else have we already got the technological potential to do, but that we're not really taking advantage of. I don't know, a bit like faith in some ways that uh, it's only uh, yeah, the importance of, of, of a, you know, uh, of a saviour, you know, sometimes is only revealed by circumstances. Uh, it's, it's, the, uh, it's not just ingenuity of our thinking that governs our future. I think this is, this is fascinating, isn't it? This whole concept of uh, not just the challenges that have been posed to us during the coronavirus pandemic, but the opportunities that are now opening up. And, and as, as Christians, then there's an that extra responsibility, isn't there, to, to look at that and not to run from it, but to take our, our responsibility as stewards of God's world uh, seriously. So how, just briefly, do you think those core Christian principles should shape how we respond to this this dramatic era-defining moment that that we've we've all just gone through, Matt. I wonder if you could offer us some thoughts first. Well, just as, as Richard was saying there about taking time to assess almost the, the opportunities and what we have actually got before us, as opposed to always thinking about you know, the technology that we haven't got. Uh, I've been struck by the fact that. Uh, of the number of books that have come out recently, in my thinking anyway, about the whole area of trying to simplify our lives and reflecting on the simple things in life. Uh, two come to mind, Julia Hobsbawm's book, uh, The Simplicity Principle, and then uh, John Mark Comer's book, the, the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And just two of those books particularly kind of highlighting um, the need is to kind of try and slow down and simplify. And I think both of them were written before COVID, and but yet they've come out at the time of the COVID pandemic. And I think that whole um, idea, uh, John Comer's book being particularly from a Christian perspective, but Julie is kind of more mainstream, of about us needing to just take the time to pause, reflect, and actually think about how technology is better integrated into our lives. And I think that kind of comes back to that question that you were posing for us, James, about our responsibility for it. It, it should never be, I think, a kind of add-on extra just because we can, we can. But actually, how can technology really be integrated to make our lives better? What does it mean to be human living in a technological age? And how does, how does technology help us to be more human without taking us beyond that? And one example of perhaps taking us beyond that is just kind of, almost we becoming more like robots we just go through the motions and we're not quite sure why we're even here and what we're doing actually but taking those moments to reflect I think has, has really struck people and, and as I say reflected in these books and the, the sell, sales in those books I think has really kind of caught people's imagination and has caused this moment to be a time of reflection and thinking out through about well, what is it about life that I want to get out of it and, and what's the place of technology in that in that for me. John, as you reflect on um, this this importance of reflecting and pausing and and thinking deeply about the opportunities and our relationship with technology, um, any additional thoughts, in particular, Christian principles that can take us forward? Yes, and and it's extraordinarily difficult to do, isn't it? To um, I often think of that proverb that says. 
if you want to know what water is, don't ask a fish. And the thing about technology is, is it's so all pervasive. It, it's so has transformed our lives just generally, but particularly in the in the coronavirus epidemic, that it becomes very difficult to actually reflect on it. it, it um, and I think we just have to recognize that, that that is a struggle. And of course, at one level, you know, human beings are still the same as we have always been. We are um, created beings of a particular kind and, and we are created to be embodied, to be physically located in a, in a time and space. Uh, we are created to um, engage with others through our bodies. I mean, even now, as, as, we're, as we're talking, uh, using miracles of digital technology, it's actually our bodies, our voices, our ears, our eyes, which are the means by which uh, we communicate. And nothing is going to change that, it seems to me. Um, the, the whole challenge, uh, both from a sort of social, but also from a Christian perspective, is, is how to use this amazingly powerful technology in a way which, which enhances our fundamental humanity, which, which helps us to be more human, uh, rather than a technology which in some sense uh, distorts or twists or suppresses our essential humanity. Uh, uh, and that's not easy, I think. Um, and it needs, I think it needs this kind of ongoing discussion to try and, and work out how to do that best. You think of any specific examples of how technology can help us to be more human? I mean, I, I agree completely that, that with John that this is a huge challenge, but I'm, I'm thinking of of friends, contacts, people I've come across, where even the word technology is, is sort of a taboo word, that it, it's resisted. And, and the assumption is that technology automatically undermines our human identity. And I just wonder if sometimes what's missing is really clear examples, if there are any, of how technology is already helping us to be image bearers of God and, and, and more human. Can, can we think of any specific examples? I wonder whether uh, this may not squarely ask, answer your question, James, but it, it feels as though certainly in the realm of relationships, technology can uh, develop or retard the quality of those relationships. So uh, during lockdown, a lot of us have been uh, talking to each other, either on phone or, or Zoom or uh, other things. And had we not had that, there would have been a far greater risk of isolation, and uh, and and yet uh, there is also something missing from face to face human contact. I, I don't know that that many of my relationships have become deeper, you know, outside of my my family uh, and a few others. Uh, so there's a there's a perhaps an opportunity there, but a temptation for transactionalism rather than relationalism within within technology. Yeah, I, I really uh, resonate with that. Um, and I, I, I think one example where it helps us to become more human is, is it, it's extraordinary global connection possibilities. I mean, 
the wonderful thing about the Christian faith is that it is innately a global faith. I mean, right in its very core, you know, many theologians trace it actually to the day of Pentecost. Well, of course, it goes before that in the Old Testament. But and the day of Pentecost, when everybody gathered there in Jerusalem from all these different uh, nations and so on, heard the good news in their own language. And that was a symbolic representation of this global church. And one of the things that has just completely amazed me is how this uh, technology allows a global expression. It allows global relationships in such a powerful way, which were just not possible um, before. And, mm. um, you know, I've heard of, of local church groups where people they've been supporting around the other side of the world are now routinely coming in every every week to be part of the conversation and you know I, I was involved in a prayer gathering with a, a bunch of 100 people in North Carolina and um, I, I think there is something about that that, are, that that the humanity that we were made to be was part of a global community and we're starting to get glimpses of how technology enables that to, to, to become more of a reality. I love that. Absolutely. Matt, sorry. Yeah. Just no, no, as John in. was speaking, I was reminded of a recent conversation I've had with a couple of church leaders that have said, we haven't been actually able to gather, but we have been able to connect. And it's almost been a shift for them that, okay, we can't gather in one place and all the benefits that that brings, but there's something about connecting through technology that has brought uh, something new and something fresh that perhaps wasn't there previously. And okay, there are limitations, and I think we're all recognizing that. But in terms of the technology, in terms of Zoom calls and other video-based platform comms, uh, it does allow a level of, co uh, of connection. And actually what some of us might say is being Zoomed out and being rather tired of our fifth Zoom call of the day, actually it does require us to connect in a way that perhaps gathering together in a large group or even in a, a group of people that we're familiar with that we gather but we don't necessarily connect and I thought it was an interesting distinction these church leaders were making. I've certainly found that my my respect and appreciation for friends who do long distance relationships has deepened and increased because I uh, my my fiance and I were due to get married on the 6th of June we had to obviously cancel that postpone it and and um, she she went back to her parents uh, to spend lockdown lockdown life with with them and so we found ourselves all of a sudden going from seeing each other daily to doing a distance relationship and and I mean I I have both loved and hated it if I'm honest with you I've loved bits of it and I've 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 hated other bits of it and I guess that's been people's experience I mean even at, at my church exactly as John and Richard were saying we've had our mission partners from Mali join us every single Thursday to give us live updates and we see Hannah their daughter and we we can see their house we'd never seen that before and there's suddenly you feel more connected to their work than we ever did before and it's taken the pandemic to kind of to kind of do that which is fantastic um I want to just just kind of talk a little bit about the church as well because of course I'm sure all of you have experienced online church over the last three three months uh, this is a very broad brush question so pick up any thread of it you want as a general thing and this is not at all we don't want to get into criticisms but as a general thing do you think the church has responded well I mean my observation is yes I think the church has adapted well to this bizarre new experience but has the church responded well and risen to this challenge or or, or what do we think Matt any any thoughts 
my initial thought is I think it's been a real help and a real um, kind of a nudge and define the, the intensity of that nudge as you will. But I think it's been a nudge to perhaps experiment and, and more than experiment, uh, adopt some of these technologies in order to see how we can connect and how we can gather together as church when we can't actually gather in a physical place. So I think, and, and there's a whole, as you'll recognise, there's a whole spectrum of engagement. Though. Some uh, larger churches may, may be able to do more because they've already had things in place for that. But just to hear of, of smaller congregations, which perhaps may not have the same level of resources, but think about how they can kind of record a sermon and share that and send that out and broadcast that, or even just picking up the phone and having a kind of a one-to-one small um, uh, service with a group of people on the end of a telephone call. I think it's actually enabled us to think outside the box and innovate. And uh, I think innovation is a mixture of old meeting new ideas and seeing what emerges. And I think we've got some good, well-founded principles old ideas you could frame them as um, and the opportunity to connect them with new technology and the, the covid pandemic has kind of forced us into that place some really innovative uh, solutions have arisen so i think the church has has done really well in responding to the, the challenge that it's faced i would certainly echo that i think at a local level uh, churches by and large have responded very effectively and i think it's also there are lots of stories where churches are really taken a very significant role in terms of supporting um, people who are elderly and shielded and um, vulnerable people and so on, providing practical help. Uh, Where I feel sad is I think that at at the level of the public square, um, the church really has been pretty absent. Um, it, it, It seemed, you know, one, as this major crisis uh, hit, um, the UK, but also across the world, um, it's the voices of the medics and the um, and the politicians that that has dominated the public square. And it's almost like the Christian voices didn't feel they had the right to say anything. <clears throat> um, and um, I feel there's been a bit of a leadership vacuum. Therefore, there's been a a lack of a, of a Christian voice. For instance, I've heard people say, you know, it would have been totally appropriate to call for a national day of prayer, uh, mm. to uh, challenge Christians as to what their engagement was, to, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But um, in reality, it, that hasn't been um, my experience so far. I wonder um, if we could just move on to talk about the issue of... Uh, track and trace. I I don't intend for us to spend a long time here, but this is something that Christians have expressed concern about, this uh, particularly in relation to the data uh, collection and the holding of that data. And uh, I think there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there as well that uh, perhaps Christians are too easily uh, buying into. But um, Richard, I wonder if I could come to you just as we think about testing and tracing the implications for privacy and surveillance. Um, what are some of the issues that Christians need to be thinking about? I think for me, James, the first thing is that it, it's really helpful for us to be explicit about some of the cultural assumptions that are likely to colour our faith. Otherwise, there's a, a risk that we use our faith to 
justify our culture. And I think the perspective of Christians in Britain might be rather different from Christians in in Singapore or Seoul uh, or elsewhere on on track and trace. Uh, And I think they'd be different again from sort of Victorian England uh, at a different time. Second, I think the question is often posed as a a uh, trade-off, almost a commercial bargain. What, you know, my privacy for these benefits, um, one one thing for another. And I, I would be inclined to use a different framework uh, for Christians, perhaps for everyone, which rather than a trade, I'd I'd prefer to think about it in terms of a a relationship. You know, do we have the relationship with the state that justifies uh, a particular instance of surveillance? Does it, does it have our best interests at heart? Will it behave like a teacher or a prosecutor? Will it behave like a a coach or a critic? Uh, Because I, I think surveillance without love will lead to tyranny, but secrecy without accountability also leads to corruption. And so there's a a balance that I think is best thought about within the frame of a relationship rather than a a trade, uh, which it's often posed as. Yeah, I think the issue of surveillance is, is extremely thorny because, you know, I was just reflecting that in general, you would just from general Christian principles, one would say, in general, is a really invasive government surveillance system justified? And and the answer in general would be no, except for one possible situation, which is a lethal pandemic. So, you know, I, I think that the argument at one level from a um, public safety point of view, uh, in the midst of a lethal pandemic, I think there is an argument for a really uh, detailed surveillance of the population because of the amount of harm that uh, antisocial individuals can create to their entire community. Having said that, I think that in reality, um, the, the, the whole uh, way that track and trace has been promoted has been, I think, a classic example of of sort of putting too much faith into clever technology. The idea that by taking a Bluetooth signal, which was really not intended at all for surveillance, but was intended as a means of devices connecting wirelessly, and then by doing really clever stuff with Bluetooth on lots of different smartphones, we can then work out where people have been and who they've communicated with and all the rest and do the job of a contact tracer I'm afraid I think is completely unrealistic I mean the point is that contact tracing is is a very human art and it's very similar to the role that a detective places I mean what a contact tracer says comes to you and says now I need to know where were you at 2 30 on Friday afternoon and who were you spending time with and how long did you spend and how where were you doing and then who did you meet and then after that what did you do afterwards and who were you there? I would like to have the names and addresses of all the people you spend time with. That's what a, a contact tracer does. It's like it's like a detective checking out alibis. And um, it's a very, very human art. It needs a lot of skill, and uh, it's a sort of Miss Marple kind of role. <laughs> to expect all that to be done by clever technology looking at Bluetooth signals, I think it, it, it's just unrealistic. And I suspect what's tending to happen is that... Um, the attempts to use these technologies, at least in Western democracies, hasn't hasn't worked. Now, of course, in a totalitarian regime, 
as in China, uh, where you can impose these things um, by the force of arms and by by martial law effectively, then then yes, um, you can see how it is possible to, to have that kind of level of social control and social monitoring. But I think in a democratic um, societies, it's actually always going to be a need for human contact traces. In response to that, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but I know um, when we've looked at, when we look at other countries that are dealing with this pandemic and uh, I know it's very difficult because we're still in the midst of it and making comparisons in the middle of something is not always the most helpful. But when we're looking at other countries and noticeable characteristics that of those countries and their leadership that have handled it particularly well, perhaps. So I'm thinking South Korea, Taiwan, perhaps uh, in that. There seems to be a relatively high level of trust between citizens and government. And do you think actually that's picking up on the things that you've already shared? That there's something there about our our lack of trust or trust deficiency in government at the moment. Uh, without getting too political, but recognising what what's involved, what the actors that are involved and what you were hinting at there. I th- these are very interesting and complicated issues, aren't they? Because, yeah. um, I mean, Richard's absolutely right, they are very much to do with our culture. But also, you know, if you think of our history, you know, Britain in particular has people have gone to the stake and, and sacrificed their lives for the principles of individual liberty, the habeas corpus, you know, the right to be... Uh, and, and, and for the right of freedom, that the state should not be uh, able to tell me what I can and can't do. And a lot of this, I suspect, was behind Boris Johnson's reluctance to impose a lockdown. It was because he personally uh, was was deeply opposed to these ideas of state control. And, and, and um, so, and, and, and from a Christian point of view, there's a lot about that that is good, this idea of individual liberty and freedom. Um, so we're all products uh, of our own history, and our own history has particular strengths and particular weaknesses. I mean, if you look across the pond to what's happening in the USA, you can see a more extreme version of a libertarian uh, culture, which, which so prizes the right of individual liberty and so on. And I'm afraid what it looks like is a bit of a disaster um, that any kind of social uh, following uh, and controls uh, seem hopeless. I mean, we we are somewhere between those extremes of the USA on the one side and South Korea or Singapore on the other. I I think that's right. I I do find it quite interesting looking at technology specifically, it feels like we trust the NHS with our lives at the drop of a hat, but we're more reluctant to trust the NHS with our data. And it, it feels odd that we make that. And, and that perhaps is indicative of regulation to come for technology as a whole. Yeah, and, and I think behind all this, of course, lurk some really complex issues to do with the big tech companies, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Tencent, and uh, what many people are now calling surveillance capitalism, the the fact that um, although these services are presented as being entirely free and for our own benefit, actually there's a subplot going on uh, whereby you know, we are, some people have put it, the, the consumers are the means of production. The real customers for Google are the advertisers. 
and and we are the means by which Google makes um, advertisers provides advertisers what they want. You're not the customer; you're the product. I think somebody has said. Yes, I, and, and I think that sort of that erodes trust, doesn't it? I mean, if if as if there's a as as awareness of that goes on, uh, inevitably there is an erosion of trust, and and you know within the NHS. Uh, interestingly, DeepMind, uh, initially an independent British company, um, closely involved with the NHS, big data sets and so on. DeepMind said, we will always be a Chinese wall between us and Google. But actually, uh, the health aspects of DeepMind, I understand, have been transferred to Google and are now part of part of Google. So, so I think there are reasons for uh, a sense of mistrust. And, and, and if people are going to trust data, they need to be confident in the regulatory system. I wonder whether pulling back, there's a, a question around faith and, and privacy that it, it draws on attention John just outlined. There's a strong theme of individual liberty and faith, and, and that's right. But I, I wonder a little whether over the last 20 years or so, Christianity has been rather privatised and uh, accepting the vulnerability that being open and transparent can create, I, I wonder whether we ought to be a little more willing to give information away about ourselves rather than just keeping ourselves to ourselves. Because if I think it's only if we share our lives that we can demonstrate the authenticity of, of those lives. So I, I think that that notion of liberty is somewhat in tension with the need for authenticity and transparency that might come with it. I think I, I agree with that. And, and actually, one of the positive things that I, I've seen come out of this um, epidemic and, and the emergency is, is extraordinary sense of community, of a community spirit, that actually uh, we're, we are here for one another. This idea of individuals just doing their own thing. Uh, when an, when a, a fundamental existential threat is available, there, I, I've been very... Uh, overwhelmed really by the by the evidence of a, of a deep sense of commonality and community and for us a desire to protect the weakest I mean you know from an ethical point of view there have been voices philosophers for many years saying you know the the elderly the disabled and so on their lives are of little value and actually they'd do us all a favor if they would sort of do the decent thing and kill themselves and then we could concentrate on the young and the healthy and then along comes this epidemic that seems to target particularly the elderly. And you would have thought it was an ideal opportunity for all those people to come out of the woodwork and say, well, you know, great thing. You know, here's the coronavirus. It's doing our job for us. But in fact, we haven't heard that voice at all. The voice we've heard is how terrible that we were not properly protecting the care homes. And, and what can we do to protect the people who are most vulnerable in our society? So I think that shows how these, these Christian principles of solidarity are, in fact, still deeply rooted in our society. Yeah, I was just struck when, when Richard was saying that. I think that there is something differently there. I think where where privacy and surveillance data issues kind of amalgam there gets kind of thorny is when people feel that they're giving something up, or the majority of giving something up for the minority to have power and control over it. And if, if it could be seen uh, an adjustment, a change take place, where actually if I'm giving up this data, but I can see a greater good, the greater of humanity then I think that begins to be a little bit more uh, palatable and acceptable because of that sense that it's a wider purpose of which I'm participating in giving up or, or sharing of data and opening up my life to 
there's a, there's a greater and wider benefit that can be uh, perceived. It's fascinating. I, I so much more that we could say on on this topic, but I want to move us on to talk about another phenomenon that we have witnessed, where technology has has facilitated uh, the the boom in home working that's taken place over the last three to four months. And I mean, just from my own experience, I I have never worked from home apart from in these last three months, and my eyes have been opened. I can't wait to submit a request for a new flexible working pattern when, when our office at CARE is, is reopened. But um, do you get the sense that remote working is, is here to stay in a big new way? Is, is that your, your feeling? Matt, do you want to kick us off on this one? Uh, yeah, as, as somebody who's worked as consultant for a good part of my life and at least had half, half of my working week previously working from home, obviously I'm working from home all the time at the moment, um, I, I do think... Um, since that I get work talking from colleagues and also various studies that I, I know have come out over this period, there is a, a greater realisation now that where employers were very kind of cautious about letting people work from home because we weren't quite sure whether they'd be going off sunbathing in the garden or not really kind of watching box sets downstairs whilst logged on upstairs so it was perceived they were still working. I think that has... I would say, use the term abolished, because I do think uh, what's coming through is, and certainly in terms of satisfaction from employers and employees, a much greater level of productivity. It's noticeable that employers are more productive, they feel more energised, more empowered to do the work that they're doing, because they're working within a familiar environment uh, and it's much more less commute time, a more opportunity to be with family, and the work life balance is uh, is easier. Uh, so I, I think I'd be very surprised if we don't see some fundamental change here. I think we will still need the office and be able to connect because I think innovation happens best when we can actually eyeball one another and exchange ideas. So I think there's that for that reason alone. I think we will still need the office, a kind of a, a communal place for people to meet. But I think home working, I, I, I think, is here to stay in a bigger way than what it has been before. I, my, my experience, uh, Matt, is that you can be productive and still watch a box set at the same time. It's amazing. <laughs> amazing what technology well, allows us to do. I, I wait to hear your uh, read your book or your blog on that, giving <laughs> us the advice on how to do that well. I, I just hope my boss doesn't listen to this podcast. But anyway, um, th this thing, home working then here to stay. Uh, Richard, do you think this is a good thing? Is this something that, that we should welcome uh, as Christians, as, as members of the Christian community? Well, I, I think freedom is generally a good thing, uh, but it, it is usually freedom with responsibility. Uh, I think it's easy to consider, uh, perhaps, you know, if if we're one of the lucky ones that is able to to work from home, that that's now a universal fact. But I, I think that probably where there were cultural barriers to working at home, Corona may have swept those away. But there are still a huge number of jobs, uh, often less well-paid and uh, more precarious, where that's not an option for people and, and they have to go in. And, and so in a way, uh, it may be uh, a development that is positive, but still accentuates inequality of opportunity uh, within the workforce. So uh, like so many things, I think uh, there's, there's uh, upsides and downsides, but uh, like you, I am glad to have the opportunity to work at home regularly, uh, but without forgetting the value of, of physical human contact as well. 
And of course, another point to come on the back of what Richard said is those people that have had to work from home, many of us, um, who have had to struggle or, or wrestle with family and childcare responsibilities in so longer term, that will probably be a real hurdle or more, okay, it's all very well for you that don't have those responsibilities, but how do I try and handle childcare and so forth whilst working from home? So an awful lot of positives and advantages, but I can also see and appreciate that for others, it does almost present a whole series of other challenges of which they could well do without, perhaps. Ofsted did come over to our house the other day to inspect us and, and we got an unsatisfactory rating for our homeschooling efforts, Matt. So I, I think my children are looking forward to not working from home, but actually going back to school. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to make the same point about the digital divide, so-called. And um, sadly, what history has teaches us is that pandemics so often just accentuate the difference between the rich and the poor. And I'm afraid that is going to be one of the abiding uh, effects of this um, pandemic that, you know, those of us with middle-class professional affluent jobs have basically had a very good um, epidemic. We've been able to, you know, further our careers and uh, innovate and develop all kinds of new approaches. Those who haven't had, either because they've been in the informal economy, the gig economy, and they've been low-paid carers and um, hospitality workers and so on, um, have had a very bad epidemic and, and their job prospects have been severely damaged, their economics have got worse. So, so I, think, I think we shouldn't you know, forget that by making facile uh, two two facile comments about how good it is for homeworking. I mean, I positively, I think what I've learned and many other people have learned is how exhausting uh, the physical travel of work was, and how I mean, I was doing a huge amount of travelling just um, to different meetings around the UK, sometimes internationally. To have all that wiped out and to have all that time available has has really been been a boon. I do think looking forward, therefore, one of the real challenges is how, what can we do to reduce the digital divide? What can we do to be more inclusive, to try to make sure that everybody in our community has access to these kind of high quality resources? I'm thinking particularly of the elderly. You know, I think there've been a lot of older people who've been locked out of engagement in, in what the rest of us are taking for granted and, and, maybe one of the important roles for, for local churches will be to try to make sure that the elderly and the cut-off in, in their communities have access to the best kind of technology and, and in a way which enables them to, to join and be part of, part of the community. Do you think that technology itself can help to bridge this, this divide? Is there ways in which technology can be leveraged to... Uh, cut across the the economic divide, but also, I mean, thinking about uh, schooling as well, it, it, frightening as I listen to podcasts, uh, what some people are suggesting will be the the consequence on a generation of, of young people who um, saw very well if you've gone to a private school where lessons run from nine till three as normal uh, during during the week. But if you go to a state school, you can you can go through the entire day and have no lessons. And is there some way that technology could begin to address and, and help children to catch up? Richard? 
Well, I think this is really interesting, James, because we tend to think about achieving social justice through money, you know, taxation, public spending, rather than through technology. There's no formal redistribution through technology mechanism um, because our culture generally holds technology to be universal. I, you know, can you imagine a, a sort of a special app for uh, for less affluent uh, communities that was desired by everyone, uh, but which wasn't accessible to, to them unless you had an income below £14,000 a year? It's a, a, an interesting thought experiment, which I, I think reveals uh, that that's quite an unusual uh, you know, thought. I, I do think, though, that technology as a whole can be used to reduce inequalities, uh, just as as cheap airline flights have opened up travel to a much wider uh, range of people with uh, with different incomes. So I think that you know experiences that were previously inaccessible, technology might make more affordable. Things like personalised tutoring. I think that technology will uh, make more affordable personalised healthcare, uh, more affordable uh, transport, food, energy. Technology will generally bring the cost of those things down over time. So I think technology does have a role, but it's less of a, a sort of direct intentional intervention than something like taxation or public spending. And it's also, I think, quite helpful to think of it as a utility. Uh, you know, imagine if it was still the case that you could only get clean water if you were prepared to pay for it. And, um, you know, that, that large areas of the country had to make do with, with dirty, dangerous water. I mean, we would think that was completely unaccessible, uh, unacceptable. And therefore, if maybe access to fast broadband and to, um, you know, is, is, is now such a base as basic a utility as access to electricity and to water and uh, and so on then then it becomes a, a community um, project to make sure that everybody has it and has it freely available um, and i i hope and pray that actually that's one of the positive things that might come out of the pandemic I, I agree with John. I, I think that you know, technology is is sort of approaching utility status. And I think there's an interesting arc of evolution of technology. If you look at railroads, for example, uh, you know uh, the you know, cutting edge technology of their day. Eventually, it becomes a utility and it becomes a regulated uh, industry as well. And I suspect that for quite a lot of the technologies that uh, have reached saturation. Uh, nowadays we are on the path to that same uh, uh you know utility status and regulated status for those i certainly would, would echo all of those thoughts but I, I know something from uh working within the higher education sector i think something that's come starkly to our attention was um across the sector um was when online delivery uh, became almost the only option only a way forward for he to continue to deliver degree programs the sudden i i'm i'm sure colleagues within the sector have been calling for this and trying to raise awareness of this but it came more starkly aware that actually not everybody has an internet connection not everyone has a, a tablet or or a laptop device so actually moving everything online and all, all students will now be able to access, actually realisation became much more apparent that that is not available to everyone. And what are we doing to help uh, make that utility that I agree is such a great and valuable utility that would be the launch pad for so many other 
innovative ideas that would, uh, could spring from it, that not everyone has that access. So I think it's been brought to the fore, uh, that realisation of um, still internet access is not available to everyone and not everyone has the same level of device. We might have uh, smartphones, but would be able would delivery of lectures and so forth work as well on, on a, a smartphone as other devices and it's just the inequalities involved and uh, particularly with NHE we've 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 come to a fresh place of appreciating what the real state of the situation is like. I think people so easily forget don't they that that even if you have an internet connection that doesn't mean it's a very good one um, and if sure. your only option is to find peace and quiet in an upstairs room as far away from the router as you could possibly get then you're right lectures YouTube videos whatever it might be just won't work and you'll just spend the entire time looking at that buffering signal in front of you and cause enormous frustration I, I wonder if we can just broaden this as we as we move towards it at the close of our discussion and, and just we've talked about the, the way that technology could perhaps help us to deal with this digital divide that exists in our, in our society. But we also know from, from some studies that have come out that the pandemic has had a disproportionate impact on the elderly, uh, those in poorer conditions. There's some evidence of it having a, a disproportionate effect of those from the uh, black and ethnic minority backgrounds, uh, those with underlying health problems. Again, the same question, can technology uh, play a role in helping to close um, some of these disparities? And if so, what would that begin to look like? Um, Matt, I wonder if you'd kick us off with any initial thoughts. Well, uh, my initial thoughts, and it's been informed by some exchanges that I've had, I know, with Richard previously and others, that um, use of AIs and so forth can often be seen to be kind of this big evil thing that... Um, um, is taking over the world and is trying to control us. But actually applied effectively, it could actually make that whole process of tracking and of, of making sure that uh, those vulnerable groups or those that have experienced COVID, for example, in quite unprecedented ways, AIs applied in that kind of uh, setting could actually improve our understanding and uh, improve our scenario planning for the for the future to be better and improve because of the way in which the data can be analysed and um, processed uh, and in help inform our, our planning. Uh, Richard, you're far better placed than I to kind of expand upon that. But uh, it, 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 have I got a kind of a, a right end of the stick on that? that? There's opportunities there for us to be able to think of using data in a much more um, organised and efficient way to improve our understanding in regards to planning forward? Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, AI, machine learning uh, is a general purpose technology that's going to help in a huge number of, of situations and circumstances. I guess I said a little bit in a, a, a previous answer about how I thought technology could help to reduce inequality, but maybe just connecting together uh, AI with a specific example uh, around that personalised tutoring. So there's a service called Isaac Physics that's run out of Cambridge University, about one in four uh, children who are studying physics at uh, A-level now use this service. And using machine learning, you can personalise the difficulty of questions that students are faced, because a little like a game like Candy Crush, uh, keeping students engaged is uh, quite a tricky task. If it's too easy or if it's too difficult, they'll lose uh, the motivation to, to stick with it. And so AI can do things like personalise 
the difficulty of, of learning of questions. It can do things like personalise the rate of revision versus progression, because all of us tend to forget at different rates, different memory retention curves, they're called. And so technology can be used in these ways to uh, personalise and, and help uh, provision to everyone in a way that perhaps previously has been only accessible to uh, the, the rich, uh, privileged, more affluent uh, selection of society. John, From a Christian thoughts? point of view, I think the idea... Uh, it's a helpful concept that technology can be redeemed, that, it, that it's something that may well have a negative and evil potential, but it, but it can be redeemed and, and used for good and for the kingdom. And it's interesting, in, in the scriptures, there are at least two other um, entities which, can, which are talked about as being redeemed. One is uh, the fact that mammon, that wealth, uh, is, is, is described as godless mammon, but it can be redeemed and used for the kingdom. And in the same way, Paul talks about the, redeeming the time uh, because the days are evil. But again, that again, that time and the loss of time can be redeemed and used for good. And, and I, I think this is a helpful model, therefore, that, to thinking that, yes, there are problematic and evil tendencies within uh, technology. And I think it's a bit naive to think of it as entirely neutral, but it can be redeemed. It can be, and the challenge I think is is to innovation, to creativity. Um, so often, I think as Christian people, that's where we fall down. We we don't lack uh, faith. We don't lack biblical teaching. Um, we what we often lack is innovation, the ability to be genuinely creative and and i think this is something to pray for that god uh, spurred on by the challenges of this current time that we would be able to respond with with new creative uh, fresh ideas do you think this is an, an opportunity i mean i was answering my own question I'm, I'm sure i know what the answer is but is this then an opportunity for the church as we rebuild society in the light of what has happened. You mentioned earlier, John, that there's a sadness there at the lack of a Christian voice when this, this uh, you know, enormous pandemic hit our country. Is there now an opportunity for the church to step in and, and be on the front foot in seeking to uh, shape what the, the new normal will look like? I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if that was the case? I, I, I think there is an opportunity. <laughs> I sometimes fear that um, many of our church leaders are just desperately hoping that they can go back to situation normal and and um, rather than seeing this as a challenge uh, for innovation. But wouldn't it be wonderful if Christians were at the front of saying, you know, what have we learned from this pandemic? How can we now um, make sure that those good things that we've learned are really solidified and and are and particularly the technologies used for the good of humanity and to promote and enhance our own human nature gentlemen i'm, I'm going to finish by um just asking you all to comment on as you look to the future it's a dangerous business but i think it's a good thing a right thing for us to do as well um as you look to the future are you uh, generally encouraged do you think that there are good things to come from this, or as you look to the future, do you find that generally you you lean more towards being discouraged in terms of how we as Christians and how the church can can move forward? And sure, this may depend on whether you're a glass half full or a glass half empty 
kind of person. But um, Matt, do you want to kick us off a, a concluding thought from you? Yeah, I, I am optimistic. I, I think there is a great appetite out of what is a very difficult, painful situation, and I'm putting it mildly. Um, I think there's an appetite to see things change. And I think the parallels between this and perhaps climate change and the fact that we were, uh, there were leading people on the case, Bill Gates and others that were flagging uh, the situation with pandemics, the prospect of a pandemic and it wasn't heeded. I, I'm optimistic that same, uh, that recognition that we, we miss it on that, we can't afford to do it again. And so, optimistic for the long term that there is a fresh appetite for thinking afresh co-creation partnership let's work at building trust again and coming up with some really practical innovative solutions and responses and does the church have a role to play in that absolutely it is a voice that's we needed around the table Richard what about yourself I agree I, I think I am hopeful I, I think that everything will be right in the end and, and if it's not all right then it's not the end I, I think that uh, you know it will all be all right I love I love that I might get you to email me that uh, that line then I can reuse it wherever I go and John a final word from yourself gosh again hard to give a final word I do think there's an opportunity I you know many people have pointed to the the cataclysm that this country went through in the Second World War, that that was the stimulus that led to the creation of the welfare state, and in particular the creation of the NHS. And uh, and yet when the NHS was created, there was, um, it's often recognised that social care was not, it was always the Cinderella, Cinderella. And maybe after, you know, this mini cataclysm of the pandemic, there is an opportunity, uh, there will be an opportunity to, make a, a major innovations in our country. And I, th I think finally, there's an opportunity for us to be generous, you know, because um, compared, as, it's almost like there's a slow car crash happening around the world and we're watching tragically um, the virus taking off in some very poor countries. And I'm, I'm afraid that process is likely to continue. I think there's an opportunity for the rich Western countries, particularly the European countries to, to show generosity and compassion and, and wouldn't it be wonderful if christians were in the forefront of that brilliant well john richards matt thank you very much for coming on the carecast i'm sure many of you listening watching will have uh, even more questions um, but hopefully also a few answers as well um, and it's been great to be with you so thank you for joining us on another carecast you've been listening to the carecast Remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes and find out more about the work of care on care.org.uk. Care. For what you believe.